0: This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, there are two Japanese fairy tales, and you'll see how the grass is always greener, on the surface of the sun. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see how useful an English degree can be, because studying poetry might just save your life when facing blue Scottish mermen. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 26, Wisdom. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you may not have heard, but really should. Today we look at a few pages from Japanese folklore. You should think of these stories taking place in medieval or early modern Japan. They're fairy tales, and as such, these stories don't provide much background about time period or mythology. So we're just gonna get started. An old man lived in a tiny wooden hut every night after darkness fell he would sit by a small lamp sharpening his tools for the next day in the morning the old man would struggle up from his cot gather his tools and start out up the mountainside with a bit of water and bread in hand today was no different it was a beautiful day and the old man though he had lived his entire life on the same mountain enjoyed each day anew Sure, he was a stone cutter, but he had found a place in this world. Soon, he found the rock he was supposed to cut. It was to be a gravestone for a rich man. He knew the man had requested a certain type of stone, but the stone cutter had been doing this for years, and he knew better. Finding the most beautiful of the stones, he cut it free. Dragging soon to be headstones down a mountain had been easier when he was younger, but it was no large task, even now. He was actually grateful for the work, It had kept him strong. When some of his friends had grown complacent or weak, he was proud that he could still rise each morning, climb a mountain, and do what he had trained his whole life to do. The old man dragged the stone to the estate of the rich man. Usually, he sold his stones in town. So this was a new place he had never seen before. He saw the opulent house with its luxurious, comfortable furniture. The air inside was cool too, a welcome respite from the hot sun. Standing in the entryway, receiving his payment from the servants, the stonecutter began to drag going back outside into the heat. Before entering the house, the old man had been content. Everything had been normal, bearable. But having experienced something greater, the old man now saw his reality as a hardship he must face. The man accepted his money, and even though he was no longer hauling a large stone slab, he was in a worse mood than he had come in with. The day was long after that, and the stonecutter's meager bed felt lumpy and uncomfortable that night. The next morning, he found that he ached in a way he hadn't before. He was finally starting to feel his years. That morning, his tools chipped, and he actually found he was getting blisters. Unable to work the rock loose, he threw down his tools and muttered to himself, if I were a rich man and could sleep in a bed with silken curtains and golden tassels, how happy I should be. The old man jumped as he heard a voice all around him, saying, your wish is heard, a rich man you shall be. Who, who was that? The old man asked, bewildered. But the voice said nothing more. Excellent, the old man threw down his tools. Not only was his body failing him, but his mind as well. He was hearing voices. He threw up his hands. He had made enough from the gravestone job the other day that he could take the day off. With that, he gathered up his tools and went home. If he only thought he was losing his mind, he became certain when he walked up to what he thought was his home, only to see an estate that rivaled the one of the rich man he had seen the day before. Shaking his weary head, he retraced his steps. How had he ended up here? He backtracked to a location he knew he recognized and the old man followed the landmarks back home again until, no, it was still the mansion didn't make sense. Then he saw servants rushing toward him. I know, I know, he said slumping over. I'm trespassing. I'll leave. Now he was tired, crazy, and homeless. But the servants stopped him and clothed them in a fantastic robe. They laughed at his joke about trespassing and told him a meal was ready and waiting for him. For me, he questioned. Yes, master, you said the servant, smiling and showing the poor stonecutter inside. After feasting on the best meal he had ever had, the stonecutter laid down in his new bed, surrounded by silken curtains and golden tassels, and remembered asking for exactly that thing. His mind raced. Was he actually the rich man who was supposed to be here, and not just suffering some sort of mental breakdown out in the forest, thinking he was here? Then he remembered the voice in the woods. Maybe it was the spirit of the mountain, whatever it was called. It was a mysterious voice from somewhere in the mountains that supposedly granted wishes. The old man had heard the stories, and until today, he had never really believed them. But, how could he not after all this? The stonecutter accepted this amazing gift, and went about his life filled with joy. He loved the life of a wealthy man, and soon forgot completely about his profession, and the old life he used to have. He stowed his tools away, trying to forget them like a bad dream. As summer progressed, he was happy to be inside his mansion and not outside chipping away at stones. Soon, though, it grew too hot, even inside, for him to be completely comfortable. Where he used to toil in the sun all day with no problem, now he was too overwhelmed just sitting inside. One afternoon, the man peeked outside his mansion and spied a prince riding by in a carriage. The prince traveled under a golden umbrella, which... As an aside, I think it would be like having a small oven on your head. Gold is an excellent heat conductor, and that's why it's used so often in electronics. But as an umbrella that can't possibly fold up, maybe a little bit over-the-top prince. Anyway, the stonecutter saw the prince, and he was envious. Not at the prince's hot, ridiculously impractical golden umbrella. No, he knew this prince had the power and means to escape the heat. He was respected, too, and traveled from place to place in a carriage. The stonecutter got an idea in his head. What if he wished to be a prince? Would the voice of the mountain hear him? He wished aloud, oh, if only I were a prince and could go in such a carriage and have a golden umbrella held over me. How happy I should be. He blinked and the stonecutter was standing in a magnificent palace. It was where his shack and then mansion had been. The man smiled. Now he was royalty. And it was better than being merely incredibly rich. He had real power, though no idea how to use it. He was smart enough to leave any actual ruling to administrators he didn't really know. All he had to do was sit back and enjoy the trappings of power. Months passed as Prince, and the man was traveling from place to place in his carriage, and he did end up getting a golden umbrella. One day, he had had enough, tossing the shiny umbrella aside in frustration. It didn't even work. He looked at his skin, burned and brown from the sun despite all of his wealth and power. The sun burned him, the sun was more powerful. He cried out in anger, the sun is mightier than I. Oh, if only I were the sun. At once, the voice decreed, your wish is heard, the sun you shall be. The stonecutter blinked and he was indeed the sun. The increasingly inaccurately named stonecutter wasn't millions of miles out in space. He was just in the sky above Japan. It wasn't cold and dark, but he was nestled in the blue sky. Though, I suppose nothing is cold and dark if you're the sun. He felt his immense, limitless power. He was more powerful than any person and flexed his proverbial muscles, withering the crops below. He wasn't hot anymore, he was heat. He burned the faces of the princes and the poor stonecutters alike. Then, he grew bored. Being far up in the sky away from anyone and anything and not having any wants or needs or being able to go anywhere, it was monotonous. He could warm people up, burn them, or cool them down. That was it. And then one morning, a cloud went up right in front of his face. He tried to swat it aside, but remembered that he didn't have any arms. Japan experienced a cloudy, rainy week where the sun, his face, was completely blocked out by mere clouds discontentment once more filled his soul. He was bored, true, but this cloud literally flew in his face and absorbed his rays. This little cloud was more powerful than the sun. He yelled out, despite being the sun and not possessing vocal folds or being anywhere near oxygen, that he wished he was a cloud. Somewhere, somehow, he heard the voice of the mountain saying the cloud he shall be. He blinked as far as that was possible and he was a cloud, immediately absorbing the mighty sun's rays. He allowed some rays through and watered the earth, turning it green again after his excesses as the sun. Then he found that he liked raining. He felt the power that came from pouring down rain for weeks and weeks, flooding crops, overflowing rivers, and destroying towns and villages. Finally, there was nothing that could stand in his way, not the sun, not the rich or the poor, no one except there in the remains of one of the villages he had flooded was a rock. He poured and poured with all of his might, beating against it. But there it remained, even when every building, tree, and person in the area had been swept away. The stonecutter cloud grew incensed. This humble boulder was more powerful than he was. He cried out once again to the mountain. He wished he was a stone. The voice replied, Your wish is heard. A rock you shall be. Immediately the old man, formerly a stonecutter, then a rich man, prince, sun, and cloud, became a large boulder. He sat firmly on the same mountain he used to climb daily, and he surveyed everything. He needed nothing. He couldn't be hurt by the sun or the rain. He was a rock. He was an island. He was immovable and eternal. Then he heard something. It was familiar. A tapping and a ringing he used to know so well. He looked down at the base of himself and saw a humble stonecutter breaking off a piece of him, tying it up, and dragging it away. He was dismayed. He thought he was the most powerful thing of all, but now a poor stonecutter would destroy him bit by bit. In his rage, he cried out to the mountain as he had done for the past few transformations whenever he saw something more powerful. He wished, to be a man. A voice answered, your wish is heard, a man once more you shall be. In an instant, the rock was gone, and the poor, wiry stonecutter stood in its place. He wore the same tattered work clothes, he had the same tanned, weathered hands. In that moment he realized, after a journey that had taken him from up in the sky, to down on the earth, that he was better off where he had started, not chasing luxuries, comfort, and power, As soon as he had started the chase, he was constantly unhappy, constantly wanting more. He sat down and laughed, joyful that he was, once again, a poor stonecutter. The story ends by saying that, in the sweat of his brow, he toiled again at his trade of stonecutting. His bed was hard and his food scanty, but he had learned to be satisfied with it and did not long to be something or somebody else and he never asked for things that he did not have, or desired to be greater and mightier than other people. He was happy at last, and never again heard the voice of the mountain. This story is very similar to The Fisherman and His Wife by the Grim Brothers. It's a classic tale of hubris, and wanting more than is good for you. But I like this one much better. If you haven't heard the Grim One, it's about a fisherman who finds a fish that grants wishes. It's a golden flounder. The fisherman is a bit of a hen-pecked husband, because while he's content and lets the fish go, his wife wants more and more. He's constantly sent back to ask more of the fish, who grants him wishes. It ends with the wife, after being king, emperor, then pope, wishing to be equal to God in power, and the fish undoes everything. This story is similar, but with a fundamental difference. Like the fisherman and his wife, the stonecutter ends up exactly where he was before, but it was out of his own choice. He wasn't punished for wanting more, but he got everything he could possibly want, all those things that he thought would make him happy, but they only added to his misery. Unlike the fisherman and his wife, who are resigned to their poverty, the stonecutter embraces it. He found that he was better off as he was when he started. This next story, like a few of the Japanese fairy tales we've covered, takes place at a temple. It happened again. The priest was beaming. He had slept late, but for a good reason. He and his young acolyte had again been visited last night by the Buddha. He could hardly contain his joy as he went about his morning tasks. He completed each task quickly so as to return to his preparation of meditation meditation. Reading the sacred texts, and reciting the sutras. The old priest knew that the visitation of the Buddha could only be a result of his consistent preparation. For decades, he had been the priest in this mountain region. Meditation and living a pure life came easily because, well, it was one of the only things a priest could do here. He lived nearly a day's hike from the local village, and the hike was a dangerous one. Though the village collected food for the priest and his acolyte, only a few were brave enough to climb up once a month to bring them supplies. The priest was surprised then, when he heard the creak of the chest out front. The villagers had just brought provisions a week ago. Who could this be? He rushed out. Pushing open the thin wooden door, the priest saw a hunter placing a bag of rice in the chest. The rugged man smiled politely and then turned around. The priest surmised that the hunter was ashamed. After all, he was impure. He made his living from taking the lives of animals, something abhorrent to the Buddha. The priest was going to let him go, but he was too eager to tell someone, anyone about the visitation. He called out to the hunter to wait. The hunter told the priest that he didn't mean to keep him. He was just coming home from selling his kills in the city and knew that he would be coming by here. He just wanted to drop off some rice and didn't mean to disturb the priest. Oh, disturb? No, the priest said. Come inside, please. Really, there's no need, the hunter protested. Please, please, I insist, the priest offered. And so the hunter shrugged. He could spend a little while here. His family wasn't expecting him in the village until tomorrow anyway. He went with the priest into the small, isolated temple. Drinking tea, the hunter learned of the late-night visitations from the Buddha. He was amazed to learn that the priest had seen the Buddha for the last six nights. Each night, the Buddha traveled closer and closer to the temple, on a snow-white elephant with six tusks. The acolyte had seen him too. The hunter stopped the priest. You have an acolyte here? "'Yes, of course,' the priest answered. "'The priest informed the hunter "'that the accolade had been with him a little over a year. "'He was a sharp boy, but still early in his training. "'And he's seen the Buddha as well. "'Yes, each time.' "'Hmm,' the hunter said. "'It was obvious to the priest "'that the man was deep in thought, "'or as deep as the likely illiterate hunter could get,' "'he assumed. "'The priest knew what the man was thinking. "'He knew what the man wanted.' Would you like to stay tonight and see the Buddha? The priest asked the smelly mountain man. Me? See the Buddha? Hunter repeated and narrowed his eyes at the priest. I would be ecstatic to see such a holy vision, the Hunter said, his voice not matching his words. The priest, though happy to give this rare gift to such a bumpkin, was getting the slightest bit impatient. It was late morning and he wanted to continue preparing and meditating for the visitation of the Buddha tonight. He told the hunter to basically make himself at home, because the Buddha usually didn't come until after midnight. In moments between meditating, reading, and recitation, the priest could hear the hunter knocking about the temple. He could hear the man fixing food, thumbing through scripture, and inspecting the beautifully painted screens that were not covered in cartoon cats. He also heard the hunter talking to the acolyte, the boy not older than 10, who confirmed the priest's story. The hunter kept pressing the boy for details, such as the placement and the look of the Buddha, and when exactly he appeared, and what exactly he and the elephant were wearing. He also asked the boy more personal questions, like how long the boy had been here with the priest, how often the boy studied, and what he did to meditate. The priest smiled. Even though the hunter was distracting the boy from training, the priest had to remind himself that he and his acolyte knew much, much more of the Buddha and the holy scriptures than this man who took lives to feed his family. The priest couldn't really fault the hunter too much for being nervous and wanting to know everything about the Buddha before the holy vision that evening. The priest returned to his meditations. Later on, the priest ate with his acolyte and the hunter. The rugged man was curiously quiet, and he still seemed nervous. The man barely touched his rice and vegetables and then paced around all evening. priest looked at him just before midnight and noticed that even though the hunter had been there all day, he hadn't taken off his bow, quiver, or knife. The priest told the hunter that he could take him off if he wished. He was staying the night after all. The hunter looked at his hosts and said, oh, I must have forgotten I was wearing them. Hm, you know what? I think I'll just keep them on. i wear them for so long in the forest that I'm used to them. It would be more uncomfortable now to not wear them. The priest shrugged. Okay. He had never been a hunter, he told himself. He didn't know what it was like to wear weapons. At midnight, the priest opened the door to the temple. It was thin and wooden, yet they were all surprised by how cold and windy it had become outside. The weather was unpredictable in the mountains, and even though it had been a hot day, it could obviously change quickly, especially in September. The priest told the hunter that it may take a few moments or may take a few hours, but the Buddha had come the past six nights when they were standing at the temple threshold, so they knew he would come tonight. He turned to his acolyte and nodded. Kneeling down, forehead to the threshold of the temple, the priest and acolyte waited. The hunter took his seat behind them, out of respect. The priest was meditating, and could only really tell the time by the chill creeping into his hands, and the stiffness in his extremities. He could no longer feel his fingers or his toes. And then, hearing a gasp from behind him, he looked up. There, floating far off in the distance, along the trail, was a light. It was like the light of a star, which slowly morphed into a torch as it approached. Soon, it was like a great fire in front of them. As their eyes adjusted, it emerged. The Buddha. The Buddha wasn't 100 feet away, but he was magnificent. He was exactly as he had been the past few nights, sitting atop a white elephant with six tusks. Tears began streaming down the priest's face as he bowed lower. He began chanting the invocation, begging the Buddha to draw closer. Whenever he glanced up, the priest could see the elephant getting closer. The Buddha was now closer than he had ever been, passing where he had turned back on the previous night. The priest and the acolyte redoubled their efforts, chanting the invocation louder and louder. They were so loud, though, that they didn't hear the hunter stand up behind them. They didn't hear. In one motion, the provincial unhook his bow and pull an arrow from the quiver. It was only by the virtue that it was when the priest was taking a breath that the old man heard the bow creak ever so slightly and heard the hunter slowly exhale. The priest stopped chanting and turned his head around to see the hunter shoot an arrow directly at the Buddha. The priest had no time to even take a breath as he watched the arrow bury itself deeply up to the feathers in the chest of the Buddha. The priest and the acolytes screamed in horror. They watched in disbelief as the blood spot grew on the Buddha's perfect garments, and they watched it dribble from his mouth and spill onto the elephant. The elephant turned to run and made it only about 20 feet before the Buddha rolled backward, unable to hold himself up anymore. He dropped off the elephant, motionless. As he hit the ground, an explosion like thunder rang out, and a flash of lightning shocked the earth. Then, everything was dark. The Buddha was gone. In the still that followed, the priest, the acolyte, and the hunter that had killed the Buddha stood, staring out into the cold, windy darkness. The hunter was standing there, bow still in hand, and with a smirk on his face, when the priest grabbed him from outside the temple. Demon, the priest screamed, contorted in rage. You horrible, horrible creature, what have you done? Before the hunter could open his mouth, though, the priest had grabbed him by the furs he was wearing, the furs that represented his life of killing, and threw him out of the temple. The priest grabbed the acolyte and pulled him inside. They slammed the door to the temple and barred it from the inside. The boy was weeping, and the priest understood his sorrow and fear. Suddenly, they jumped as the door rattled in its frame. The hunter was pounding on it, trying to get in. They relaxed when it looked like the door would hold, and the priest went and searched for books. Minutes later, they were again filled with anxiety as the wooden door began to creak. The man, or demon, or whatever he was, wasn't leaving. He was sitting just outside the door, waiting. This made their study all the more important. In the last few hours before dawn, the priest and his acolyte combed through books for something they could use to fight a demon powerful enough to kill a Buddha. They were dismayed, though, when they realized there wasn't any precedent for this. There were only vague philosophical musings on killing the Buddha, nothing that said what to do with someone or something that could actually do it. During their intense study, they almost forgot about the murderer sitting just outside the door. After hours of silence, the hunter, again, began pounding on the thin door. The priest and the acolyte froze. Open the door, the hunter yelled. The priest and the acolyte remained silent in fear. Okay, I have my ax, the hunter said. If you don't open the door, I will. You have five minutes. The priest quickly weighed his options. He looked around, noticing the absence of the hunter's pack. The man, or demon, had clearly planned ahead. They couldn't stop him from breaking in and killing them. They could, however, at least stop the hunter from further desecrating their temple. The priest slid the door open. The hunter stood with his gear on, bow and arrow ready in his hands. The implication was clear. The hunter was going to lead them into the forest, toward whatever horrors lurked in the hunter's head. The next traveler would find the temple abandoned, and rightfully assume the worst, "'it would become a cursed place. "'Come with me,' the hunter said. "'He rubbed his eyes with his wrists, "'not letting go of the bow and arrow. "'All pretense of oafishness or anxiety from before were gone. "'He was now harsh and gruff. "'The priest took his acolyte. "'They wouldn't fight him, "'but they wouldn't just stay here to be killed by him either. "'If they went along with the hunter, "'they might have a chance to run.' "'The priest nodded, urging his acolyte to come with him.' The hunter ordered them to walk out in front while he followed behind them with the bow and arrow. They hadn't gone far when the hunter stopped them. They turned around to see the hunter kneeling by something. It was something the priest had missed. The holy blood of the Buddha, whimpered the boy, rage growing within the priest. The hunter's eyes scanned a trail going off the path and into the forest. We're going to find your Buddha, the hunter said, and motioned for them to go before him into the brush. Not twenty feet off the trail, the priest was ready to make a break for it. He would be the bigger target, and would shield the boy from the inevitable arrows. At the very least, the acolyte might be able to survive. Here it is, the hunter said, standing in front of a cave. The mouth of the cave was covered in blood. It was where the Buddha had crawled off to, to die. Wait here, the hunter said, leaving to search the cave. As soon as the man was out of sight, the priest turned to the boy. We're going to run. You go first, and I'll go second to draw his arrows. Don't question this. It's the last instruction I'll be able to give you as your teacher. Now run and don't look back, no matter what you hear. You're not running, the hunter said. The priest gasped and spun around to see the man looming there. He had been impossibly quiet sneaking up on them. Go to the cave, and this law will be over, the hunter ordered. No, why, so you can shoot us in the back? No, we're not going to the cave. We don't need to see him like that. The hunter rolled his eyes and cast his bow and arrow to the ground. Happy? Now go to the cave, the hunter said. And without his weapon, he didn't look so imposing. More so just tired. The priest realized that they could now run if they wanted to, but at the same time, the hunter didn't seem all that threatening anymore priest decided that he might as well go look in the cave. The priest approached the cave, his acolyte close behind. He didn't want to look, but the hunter, when he saw the priest jerking away, pushed him up to see the dead Buddha. Except it wasn't the Buddha. It was a huge, horrific goblin lying dead in a cave. An arrow sunk deeply into its chest, up to the feathers. The hunter stepped in, ripped the arrow out, wiped it down, and returned it to the quiver. I don't understand, the priest fumbled. The hunter sat the priest down. The first thing that the priest had told him the day before was that he had seen the Buddha. Likely a reward for years of constant meditation and recitation of the sutras, right? The priest nodded, of course. So how could the boy see him? How could I see him, the hunter asked.
1: My profession is a
0: hunter. An ignorant hunter, the man admitted. I kill things for a living, which is hateful to the Buddhas. I've accepted that, but how could a man who takes the lives of animals see the divine? And the boy? Well, he's more able than me, but he still has years of study ahead of him before he can even approach your level, priest. The priest nodded. This all made sense. It was a goblin, the hunter said. Something seeking to deceive you, to destroy you when your garb was down, and when it could get close enough. It was getting closer and closer each night. It likely would have killed you, or worse, very soon. I stayed in front of your temple last night, in the event that it wasn't dead. I didn't want to leave you or the boy until I was sure I had killed it. But then, why didn't you tell me last night? The tired priest asked. Would you have believed me? "'You thought you saw me kill a Buddha right in front of you, "'and then you drove me out without a word,' the priest paused. "'He started to speak, to say that he was sorry, "'and to thank the man who had saved both their lives. "'But the hunter spoke up just before he could say something. "'You're welcome,' said the hunter. "'Just see it as a service from another villager.' "'And with that, the hunter walked off into the forest.' He left the wise, learned, pure priest by the body of the goblin that would have deceived and killed him and his acolyte had it not been for the ignorant, impure hunter who shot it down. I thought this was a really interesting story. It's called Common Sense, and it does a good job of illustrating the difference between the book knowledge of the priest and the common sense, worldly knowledge of the hunter, and how there's a place for both in the world. Also, the goblin was in the form of a badger, which though noteworthy, would have been a strange, derailing detail to mention at that point in the narrative. The story makes a point to mention how the priest, despite all of his learning and practice, had been deceived by a badger goblin. I make no claims to being an expert on what is considered pure and impure in Buddhism. As far as I can tell, it isn't nearly as simple as what's presented in the story. It was a minor plot point, but I just wanted to give that little caveat. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll catch back up with King Arthur, just after he pulled the sword from the stone and became king, only to have several of the kings underneath him rebel, because pulling a sword from a stone is no basis for a system of government. The Lady of the Lake will give him Excalibur, in a farcical aquatic ceremony, and he'll meet the future Queen Guinevere. Thanks to amazing member support, I was able to get some great sources for this episode. Sir Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur is generally seen as the definitive version of King Arthur. Well, I was able to get an English translation of his main source, the 12th century Old French Vulgate Cycle. All that means is that this is going to be a King Arthur like you've never seen him before, as close to the medieval perceptions of him as possible. I am so excited. I want to say thanks to Zachary, Garrison, Paige, Colleen, Rose, Lee, Drake, Tan, Jennifer, Triana, Leon, Tracy, Tyre, Katrina, Jay, Manuel, Benjamin, Betsy, L, Matthew, Nicole, Andrew, Ryan, David, Drea, Philip, Barbara, Rob B, Michael, Tracy, Sean, Joe, Tobias, Rob F, Elizabeth, Suki, Claire, Michelle, Ashley, P. Palmer, and Zoe for becoming new members on the site in February of 2016. Seriously, thank you so much. It's because of your support that this podcast is able to keep going at its current rate, as well as grow. I'm incredibly grateful. Thanks again. Speaking of grow, I'm launching a new podcast in the coming weeks. It'll be another storytelling podcast, and I'll announce it on the show when it comes out. You can follow this show on Twitter and Facebook to keep up with what's going on. And I'm on Twitter at @mythpodcast and Facebook at facebook.com mythpodcast. There's also a membership thing on the site. If you'd like to help out and support the show, you can do so for less than $5 per month. That's less than the price of a wall decal of a bologna sandwich with a bite taken out of it. There are source pack ebooks and extra episodes that won't remind you of room temperature bologna. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. Creature this week is, or are, the blue men of the Minch from Scottish folklore. They are blue mermen who occupy the stretch of water known as the Minch in Northwest Scotland. The Minch is a body of water that separates mainland Scotland from an island chain called the Hebrides. They are in some places blue mermen, in other places blue storm kelpies. They have blue skin, a long gray face, and curly hair and beards. They also maybe have wings, Kelpies are shape-shifting water creatures from Scottish folklore, and I promise I'll go over them at a later date. There's much more to them than I could cover in a two-minute segment on another creature, though, so I'm gonna save them for later. The blue men live in an underwater cave system, and they're ruled by a chief. In the mid-18th century, there were tales of a blue man with a wild beard rising from the surf behind a ship. They cause terrible storms whenever they're not in their caves. There is a way to avoid their storms and pass safely, though. The chief will rise out of the water and say two lines of poetry. If you can meet him with two more lines of poetry that completes the rhyme, then he'll come back with another couple of lines. It goes back and forth until you either can't come up with a line and are sunk, or until the blue chief runs out of lines and admits defeat. If you can best him in this rhyming couplet rap battle, he will head back to his cave, giving you safe seas. In one instance, the interchange went like this. And this is completely serious. This is an actual supposed account. The blue chief said, Man of the black cap, what do you say as your proud ship cleaves the brine? The skipper said, My speedy ship takes the shortest way, and I'll follow you line by line. The blue chief said, My men are eager, my men are ready to drag you below the waves. The skipper said, My ship is speedy, my ship is steady, and if it sank, it would wreck your caves. The blue chief was so flustered that the man had actually completed his lines that he swam away in embarrassment the skipper and his legendary rhyming skills went down in history, and he passed safely. So the next time you're sailing the waters of the Minch in northern Scotland, be sure to bring your rhyming dictionary, and be prepared for a very high-stakes poetry slam. That's it for this week. Theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs, thanks to the other music I used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening